Our scripture reading this morning comes from 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, and we'll be reading the first seven verses. There's an underlying principle behind this text that you may not think of immediately, but I want to call it your attention. And the underlying principle is this. The Word of God is objectively true. It does not fall because mockers scoff at it. Nor does it stand because believers believe it. It's not true because we believe it. It's true. And therefore, we believe it. So, mockers will not cause it to fall. Believers don't make it to stand. And how thankful we ought to be that the Word of God is true and it stands on its own. So, hear the Word of God. Now, as it's read, Second Peter 3, beginning at verse 1. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. May the Lord bless the reading and now the preaching of his word. Okay, I'm, I'm sitting back there right before I come out to preach and Tim's standing right in front of me and um, we didn't talk at all. I'm praying he's getting ready to read and he totally took my introduction. <laughs> I'm not, I'm going to read it. I'm not even lying. Listen to this. This is my first sentence. A few years ago, I read a bumper sticker that said, God said it. I believe it. That settles it. It got me thinking, does it really settle something only if we believe it? Is settling it contingent upon our believing it? Well, that's how my brain works in the car. Mark, it's a bumper sticker. You know, I don't think too that deeply about it, but I know, I know. But it's, it's not correct. And, and Tim made the, made the point, and I really appreciate him saying it. I'm not meaning to beat you up for that. Thank you. You just put the ball on the tee for me is what you did. If God said it, as Tim reminded us in his reading, that settles it. It's objective. It doesn't depend upon our subjective approval for it to be true. It really, in that sense, doesn't matter if we believe it. If God said that the sky is going to roll up like a scroll one day and the Son of Man... 
the Son of God, the King and Christ, the Lord Jesus, is going to split the sky and return to this earth with a host of angels and saints with him to come back and establish his kingdom on earth forever where righteousness will dwell, where sin and evil will be purged, where the ungodly will be destroyed, that's going to happen. And I don't want to preach this sermon and miss that because the point of this passage makes no sense unless Jesus is coming back. And he is. Peter assumes that in 2 Peter 3, 1 to 7, and he makes it, abundantly clear why in this entire chapter. The second coming of Jesus is really the focus of Second Peter chapter 3, and it's really an underlying theme throughout the whole letter. Peter is, in fact, going back to chapter 1. Chapter 2 is like one big parenthesis in the letter. It's a whole chapter, as we've seen the last several weeks, where he devotes to talking about false teachers and false teaching. And the reason why he spends a whole chapter talking about that is because the second coming matters so much. And understanding what Jesus is going to do when he comes back matters so much. So it's going to happen. And one of those saints that will be with him is Ted Sook. So if God said it, And the saints are going to return with Jesus. That settles it. Contrary to what scoffers and mockers might say. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Problem of Pain, said it this way. A man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the walls of his cell. The point of that is a lunatic can believe that by scribbling the words darkness on his cell, that he's somehow putting out the sun. That doesn't change the fact that the sun is shining and he can't see it. So we can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him than a lunatic could do that. God is right. He is true. His glory will be upheld and displayed for the universe for all to see whether or not it's reflected in anyone. Peter is writing in 2 Peter 3 about scoffers, people who will come and mock Christians and the claims of Christians that Jesus is going to return one day. But while they might mock, Peter is clear that their mocking doesn't change the fact that he's coming back. And that's why I've entitled this sermon, Why Scoffers Can't Stop the Second Coming. We're going to see three things in this text this morning. The first one is preparation for scoffers. In verses 1 and 2, then we're going to see the arrival of scoffers in verses 3 and 4 and the response to scoffers in verses 5 to 7. So verses 1 and 2, preparation for scoffers. Verses 3 and 4, arrival of scoffers. And verses 5 through 7, response to scoffers. Let's begin with number 1, preparation for scoffers in verses 1 and 2. Peter begins by saying, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you. Obviously, I believe, and most scholars believe that he's referring back to first Peter, the initial letter that he wrote to the Christians. 
here that he, to whom he's writing. And he says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. So he uses a term of apostolic affection and love for those to whom he's writing, believing that they're to be Christians. In both of them, he says, in both this letter and my letter now, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. So Peter gives his purpose for writing these two letters, and it's a very simple purpose. He's saying, I'm not writing to you to give you some new theological information. I'm not writing to you to teach you anything you don't already know. I'm writing to you to remind you of very important things. He says, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. He has a disposition of love toward these people, which is why he calls them beloved. And he trusts that the spirit in which this letter will, rec- will be received will be one of sincerity. That they are eager to hear what Peter has to write to them. And Peter is making it very clear that he's not trying to write anything new or novel, but merely something that is old and faithful and true. And that's what good pastors do. Good pastors aren't after novelty. They're not after something new, something trendy, something cool. They always want to communicate God's truth faithfully and relevantly and helpfully, but they're not after the latest buzz. They merely want to communicate and remind people of what God has said. And that's what the people of God want. The people of God want the truth of God the things they have always known to resonate in their souls again and again and again. And that's what Peter's doing here. And he gives them the reason that he's reminding them in verse two, he says that you should remember, remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and savior through your apostles. So the purpose of this reminder is that they would remember. So he's using scriptural truth to draw their attention to God's word, to draw their attention to what God has already said so that they will remember it. What does he want them specifically to remember? He says again in verse two, the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and say of the Lord and savior through your apostles. So he's reminding them and calling them to remember two things predictions of prophets and what the apostles taught them, which he assumes was the very word of Jesus, the Lord and savior speaking through his apostles. You remember the last time that Peter used this phrase apostles and prophets was back in verse 16 of chapter one. If you'll look there across your page in my Bible, one sixteen, And this was in fact, I believe one of the last passages I preached in first Peter says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I told you, I believe that's a reference to the second coming. But we were witnesses, eyewitnesses of his majesty. And then in verse 19, we have something more sure, the prophetic word. So we've got apostolic testimony, Peter and the other eyewitnesses. And then we've got the prophetic word the Old Testament prophets. So he returns to what he said earlier in chapter one. He circles back to the apostles and prophets, switching the order a little bit here from apostles and prophets to prophets and apostles. 
and picks up his argument from the end of chapter 1. You remember what he said at the end of chapter 1. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And now he comes back to that theme after a long excursus in chapter 2 about false prophets. So he's, he's circling back to what he originally said at the end of chapter 1 and picking up where he left off. And here the readers are reminded to return to the teaching of the prophets and apostles so that their teaching, especially about the second coming of Jesus in the end of history, would not be forgotten. And that they would not fall prey to what the false teachers were saying. Now he says, so that's, that's preparation. Preparation for scoffers. He's preparing them by reminding them and calling them to remember all that the prophets have said, all that the apostles have said regarding the second coming of Christ, which he has already said a lot about in this letter. Now, when he talks about the predictions of the holy prophets, he has passages in mind, probably like Malachi chapter four. If you'd like there, you can turn. It's the last book in the Old Testament. But I just want to read you one of them because there are so many passages in the Old Testament that, that refer to the, to the coming, the day of the Lord, as it's called in the Old Testament, which we know in the New Testament refers to the second coming of Christ. But Malachi chapter 4, the first two verses speak of this day when they say, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, said the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. So no doubt Peter referred perhaps to that passage and many other passages when he was teaching these Christians about the day of the Lord, the second coming of the Messiah and what that day would be like, that it would be a day of great destruction for the ungodly and of great rescue for the righteous. And so he's calling them to remember those predictions and to not forget those things. And I'm going to come back at the end and make application to that in our lives. But let me move on into the second point, the arrival of scoffers. We see this prediction fulfilled in verse 3, where Peter says, Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. So here they arrive. What's a scoffer? Scoffer is just someone who mocks the claims of Christianity, who makes light of what the Bible teaches about any number of things specifically here, it's making light of the second coming and the fact that Jesus is going to come back in power and glory. But it's just someone who sees that as ridiculous, who sees that as beneath intelligence, fantasy, a myth, as he says in one it's a cleverly devised fable, but it's not true. Scoffers would say that. And he says that they're going to come in the last days with scoffing. Now, what's that phrase, the last days, refer to? Well, I don't have time to prove it. There are lots of phrases in the New Testament, specifically 2 Timothy 3 refers to it. But this phrase, the last days, refers to the entire period between the arrival of Christ and his second coming. 
The last days phrase in the New Testament is not just referring to a few days right before Christ comes back. It's referring to the entire, what we call the inner advental period, the period between the two advents of Christ, the first coming and the second coming. So we, brothers and sisters, are in the last days. Now, I'm not saying that as in there will be a last day of the last days, but we are in that period of time in redemptive history referred to as the last days. These are the days that the prophets prophesied in which and the apostles predicted in which scoffing would come, especially toward the claims of Christianity. And that kind of scoffing would be increased and proliferated throughout the world. And we are certainly seeing that in our day. I mean, this text is very, very relevant to what's going on in our day with the claims of Christianity being assaulted in the media on all fronts. I mean, Christians are the whipping boys of Hollywood and mass media. I mean, if anybody, if anything gets made fun of Christianity. So it's become all too common to scoff and to mock the claims of of Christianity. I mean, even in the popular, popular television show, the big bang theory, Sheldon Cooper grows up in an evangelical Christian home in Texas, no doubt (laughs) have to be Texas. And I mean, the it's, it's a cute and funny and lighthearted take, but you've met Sheldon's mom, haven't you? When she comes for a visit, if you've seen the show and it's a very, Typical uh, do-gooder type, you know, very country, very Southern evangelical lady who believes in heaven and hell and more moral absolutes and all that stuff. And, 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 and does is not clearly not as sharp as her husband or not her husband, her son, clearly not as sharp as Sheldon. I mean, Sheldon's way past that. And he tolerates his mom's Christianity. I mean, that's real. It's, it's a, it's a, it's almost a sub intellectual experience to be a Christian. I mean, you can't be intelligent and believe that kind of stuff. And that's clearly what the scoffers are saying here too. I mean, this is ridiculous. I mean, science has led us out further from that old ancient darkness of believing in ghosts and spirits and demons and angels and supernatural activity. And a man who rises from the dead and comes back with a sword and a horse and all that. So scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. And Peter adds this little phrase, following their own sinful desires. And then he gets to the root of what scoffing is really all about, doesn't he? Scoffers scoff. Let's just be really clear. What's behind most scoffers scoffing is not an intellectual problem with Christianity. Sometimes that's the case, but it's often a moral problem with Christianity because if Christianity is true and God is real, we don't get to do what we want and get away with it. We can do what we want. We just won't get away with it. There will be a day of recompense. And 
It's interesting that he, that Peter adds this little phrase about scoffers following their own evil desires. That's referring back to a lot of the characteristics of the false prophets and the false teachers that we saw in chapter two. But that's at root why scoffers scoff at Christianity, because they don't like what it says about what they should do with their life. They want to do what they want and don't want to be told what to do. So they're driven to deride biblical truth and those who believe it and not just push for tolerance of it, but push for full acceptance of their lifestyle, which is why the same sex marriage agenda will not be satisfied with your toleration. It will only be satisfied with your full endorsement. Because tolerance still implies I should feel guilty. Full acceptance on the whole cultural level and stigmatizing those who would speak against it implies that I shouldn't feel guilty and I can behave the way I want. So we want to understand what's underneath the scoffing here. And Peter lets us know following their own evil desires. He says it again in verse five, they deliberately overlook. Isn't that an interesting phrase? They deliberately overlook this fact. It's conscious. It's willful ignoring. It's according to Romans one truth suppression. It's stuffing down what we know to be true and what our hearts resonate with and what our conscience resonates with in favor of what we want to do with what our own sinful desires are leading us to do. So what do the scoffers say? They say, Peter, Peter quotes them in verse four. He says, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? Where is it? You said, that Jesus is coming back. Why hasn't he come back yet? Why is he taking so long? I mean, this is, this is getting a little bit ridiculous, isn't it? They say forever since the fathers fell asleep. That's a reference to the, I believe Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the old Testament, the old Testament fathers, ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So these people know a little bit about the Bible. They know who the fathers are. They know that there was a beginning to creation. They're just saying everything since the fathers died has just gone on with regularity and nothing has happened. I mean, the sun came up again this morning. It went down again tonight. Spring is coming. As we know, it's coming in. Hopefully it'll get here sooner rather than later. Spring is coming just like last year at this time. Leaves are coming back on trees just like they did last spring. I mean, any thought that the sky is going to break and this man is coming back to judge the earth and plunge it into some global fire is unimaginable and unwarranted at best and perhaps cruel and fear-mongering, scaring people. That's hateful things to say, 
scaring people like that and locking them up in your little religious box and making them feel guilty about the way they live. So their, their argument is God hasn't intervened in history and God doesn't intervene in history. I mean, I did the same thing yesterday that I did today and I plan on doing the same thing tomorrow and I don't have any expectation that anything different is going to happen. I mean, the burden of proof is on you guys, Christians. Where's your claim? Give me evidence. Well, Peter's going to give him some evidence. He's going to give him some evidence. He's going to respond to him. And he does in verses five to seven. His first line of evidence, he gives three arguments, one in verse five, one in verse six, and one in verse seven. Three arguments that God does in fact intervene in the world, contrary to what they think and they deliberately overlook, that God does and has and will intervene in his creation. The first one is God did intervene when he made the world. Verse five, for they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Now he's referring back to Genesis one and he's saying there we have evidence that God intervenes in the world. Supernatural miraculous activity takes place. Peter shows an internal flaw in the scoffers argument and then in their worldview, they claim continuity since creation, but the creation of the world itself represents divine intervention. Would you go back with me to Genesis one page one of the Bible? Hold your spot in second Peter. We will be coming back, but I want us to look at a few verses in, in Genesis one, Genesis one, verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So the picture is, is that the world is chaotic and God makes it habitable for human life. And that's what he's going to do in beginning in verse three, when he starts speaking order into this, into this chaos, this unformed and undeveloped earth. The present stability of the world, Peter says, can be traced back to God's intervention here at the beginning. In fact, the stability of the world, Peter says, is not an argument against divine intervention. The fact that the world goes on in a stable way is not an argument against the fact that God doesn't intervene. It's actually an argument for it because God stepped into creation at the beginning and brought order to it. That's why it's stable scoffers because God made it stable. God set up certain natural laws and, 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 and seasons and the sun and the movement of the earth and day and night and all that. And he brought the stability to the world that it presently has. The only reason this world's not rocking and reeling more than it is, is because God's sustaining it and stabilizing it. And they're saying, that stability, the scoffers are saying that stability is an argument against God's intervention. And Peter says just the opposite, just the opposite. There is no reason that God having already intervened dramatically in his creation at the beginning will not do so at the end as well. That's Peter's argument. He said, God did it at the beginning of history. Why wouldn't he do it at the end of history? 
Now, there is this very interesting phrase in 2 Peter, which I think we'll need, some, we'll need to explain. At the end of verse 5, when he says, The earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. That can be a very confusing phrase. Like, what does he mean that the earth was formed out of water and through water? I thought the earth was formed by God through God. Well, it is both. We'll see it in Genesis one. He says, you remember Genesis chapter one, verse six, look there. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters and God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. What he's talking about here is that remember that in creating the world, God separated the waters by making the expanse of the sky so that the waters were above and below that expanse. Furthermore, the waters on earth were collected so that dry ground would also exist. We see that in verse 9. God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. So God is using water a lot to fashion and order his creation. So it shouldn't surprise us that Peter says the earth was formed out of water. God is using water instrumentally in Genesis 1 to form and bring order. So when Peter says the world was created out of water, he probably had in mind the emergence of the earth and the sky from these waters. In other words, God used the water as an instrument in forming his world. So don't let that phrase, he formed it out of water, throw you off too bad. It's in Genesis 1. Okay, let's go back to 2 Peter chapter 3 and look at the second argument. So Peter argues first that God intervened at creation and brought the stability that the creation presently has. And that's not an argument against God's intervention. It's an argument for God's intervention. Secondly, God intervened at the flood too. God intervened at the flood. He didn't just intervene at the beginning when he made the world. He intervened at the flood. Verse 6. And that by means of these, that is water and the word, which is interesting. Washing with water and the word is purification. Okay, so when we see that, those phrases, like in Ezekiel, I'll wash you with water in the word. Uh, husbands to their wives, wash them with water through the word. It's, a, it's an image in scripture of purification, of purifying. That's why it's linked to regeneration. That's why it's linked to, you know, cleansing. So he says, and that's why it's linked here to the cleansing of the earth. So for they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago. Sorry, reading wrong verse, verse six. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Clear reference to the flood. Okay, Genesis six through nine. So Peter says, if at creation, God introduced stability into the world by separating the waters during the flood, the chaos returned. For the waters were unleashed and the world was destroyed. False teachers then could hardly argue that the world is marked by regularity when a flood destroyed human beings. <laughs> I mean, what's his argument here? He's going on the other side and he's saying, not only is the present stability of the world, the world enjoys a result of God's intervention, but the flood proves that God does intervene in supernatural ways to judge his world. So they're arguing Jesus is not coming back to judge the world. There's no supernatural activity, even in the Bible. 
that predicts something like that that God would do? And Peter says, no, there is. You conveniently overlook the flood. You conveniently overlook the fact that God, in judgment upon people for scoffing and mocking him and saying, you know, we'll, we'll just follow our own desires. Noah, quit. Calm down about this. Quit being a preacher of righteousness. Stop building that big boat. You look like an idiot. And then one day it started raining. And it didn't stop for 40 days and 40 nights until the world was judged and people were killed. So Peter wants to emphasize that the very same things that brought order to the world, namely water and God's word, were also responsible for its destruction. The flood, according to Peter, was not some natural disaster. It was an act of God's judgment on the world for the autonomy, the self-rule, and selfish, sinful behavior of human beings appointed by his word and affected through water. So his point is that the judgment at the flood was comprehensive enough to include the world and function as an anticipation of an even greater judgment to come, which he refers to in verse 7. So two arguments, two responses to the scoffers. One, God intervened at creation. Two, God intervened at the flood. Three, God will intervene in the future then. Verse 7. And by the same word, he's, you notice he's tying all this to God's word. He's tying all this to the same God. By the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist after the flood that we live in are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So the day of judgment, the second coming of Christ will involve the destruction of the ungodly and the world will be purified and cleansed by fire. We'll hear more about that next week. Actually, not next week, next week's Easter, but the following week. And Pastor Jonathan will walk us through that text. In verses 8 through 10. And then Lord willing, after that, we'll be wrapping up Second Peter. So, just a few more weeks. The false teachers, unless they repented, would realize too late that the judgment was no myth and no fairy tale. And that God does, in fact, intervene in his world. Now, let me conclude with some applications for us from this text. First of all, let me say a word. I, I want to speak to those who are perhaps here or listening. I want, I want, I, w- I wish more people were here to, but to hear this, but perhaps they'll hear um, online as well. But who, who would define themselves or would find themselves in verse three, they wouldn't call themselves a scoffer. And they're actually offended that the Bible calls them that because frankly, they find the God of the Bible to be tyrannical and evil and they don't like him. And um, they just want to do what they want to do and they don't want to be judged for it. I want to, I want to speak, speak to you if you're in that camp. And uh, you might say something like, okay, I understand where you're coming from. I get it. It's in scripture. I see it. You guys believe that stuff. It's in the Bible. But I don't, I don't believe in miracles like that. I certainly don't believe in all this wacky stuff. I don't believe God intervenes in the natural order. So I'm not disposed to believe Peter's arguments. I mean, even all his arguments are based upon Bible and I don't believe the Bible. So let me ask you this question. On what basis do you believe that the miraculous cannot occur? And someone might say, because science has disproven the possibility. Well, it's one thing for science 
to assume natural causes of things. And it's another thing to insist that science then disproves every other cause. How would science as an empirical form of investigation prove that there's no supernatural cause for any natural phenomenon? Just because science cannot by its very nature discern or test for supernatural causes does not mean that those causes don't exist. To be sure that miracles cannot occur, you'd have to be, a sh- be sure beyond a shadow of a doubt that God did not exist. And that's an article of faith and not science. That's a religious belief, not a scientific belief. That's, a, that's the philosophy of naturalism, which, you're, which is a religious creed. But because the existence of God cannot be demonstrably proven or disproven, it rests upon what sources of testimony you trust in, right? And those are both faith positions. So in that sense, someone denies miracles, not on the basis of science, but on the basis of their faith position. And a lot of non-theists are actually coming up and owning that. And I'm grateful. I'm grateful. They're being honest. They're saying, I've arrived at this position of a non-God, non-miraculous world because the evidence that I see, not based upon science, but based upon my interpretation and human philosophy, dictates it. Quite apart from the scientific method. But let me, let me just say, I just want you to know that, that, that if you're in that camp and you ascribe to that article of faith, that you have more faith than anybody in this room that's a Christian. You have way more faith. You are the most faithful religious person there could ever be because you are basing your entire world upon the testimony of natural men, just men or books you've read or arguments you've heard. And, and we're basing our testimony upon people who walked and saw and were with Jesus. So I think you have to consider like my grandmother used to say, when people would say things about me, you got to consider the source, Mark, you got to consider the source. Don't let it bother you so much. Consider the source. Well, consider your sources really just authentically consider your sources. A second application for us is an application about the importance of scripture, the importance of God's word. Brothers and sisters, we are so prone to forget and we are in need of constant, constant reminder. And Peter assumes that and he still calls us beloved. (laughs) Beloved, I know you're a forgetful lot. (laughs) Y'all don't remember something one week to the next, but I'm going to remind you again. I'm going to, I'm going to, we're going to remember, we're going to remember this together. So what does that say about our need for ongoing, regular exposure to scripture? If we're so prone to forget, I mean, our Bible intake has got to be more than this. Our exposure to the scriptures has got to be more than a day on or a morning on Sundays. Because Peter assumes here that we are more susceptible to the voice of men when we are, when we distance ourselves from the voice of God. 
those arguments of the scoffers will start sounding pretty persuasive when you're not in the Bible. So a key way that we protect ourselves and insulate ourselves from error is scripture, scriptural study, scriptural bathing ourselves in scripture. Uh, what Mike Bullmore calls a life in the word. We need a life in the word. And so I just, I just call us to, to, to as much as possible, a regular, steady exposure and intake of scripture in our lives. And I know that's nothing new. I'm just stirring you up by way of reminder. Okay. Third, we need to expect brothers and sisters, this sort of response to our faith, just expect it and don't be surprised by it and don't be offended by it and don't get all huffy about it. I mean, it, it, we, we're not crediting our faith when we react emotionally because people say, see, you're just an emotional faith, isn't it? We have a robustly intellectual faith. Peter, doesn't ar- Peter argues deep arguments, intellectual, thoughtful arguments against scoffers. We don't need to be dumb. We don't need to be dumb. But we need to see that what's behind, what's behind those arguments that we're receiving, ah, you just believe that stuff's crazy, ridiculous. What's behind that is a sinful heart that desperately needs the grace of Jesus. It's a person who is deliberately overlooking their God. It's a person who is deliberately overlooking the God who loves them and wants them to be saved. It's, it's, it's the fact that they're deliberately overlooking and shutting their eyes and following their sin, their sinful desires that only Jesus can heal. So we, we need to look on, upon scoffers with compassion. They're, they're under the reign of sin. They're under the reign of their own desires. You would be there too if Jesus hadn't broken in. And so we need to lovingly speak truth backed up by a life of compassion and warmth and gentleness and love to people who, who have serious objections to Christianity. And some of them are intellectual and some of them are moral. And we need to treat them with the same grace that Jesus treats us. And understand that the root cause of that is not because they, they're, they're, it's a cry for help is what it is. It's a cry for, I need God. And, and another application here is just the importance of being skilled in handling questions that unbelievers have. It's, it's apologetics. And I'm not talking about some, you know, intellectual exercise divorced from real context and real people's lives. You know, it's two dangers to avoid here. One is being so absorbed in the world that we neglect scripture. If we do that, we may be able to relate to people real well, but we don't have any good answers for them. You may be the most personable, happy guy. You know, everybody likes to be around you, even non-Christians just love hanging out with you. They go golfing with you. They, you know, they hang out with you at the store, whatever. But when they have real serious questions, you got no idea. I'll pray for you. But you can't really offer them biblical truth, helpful, thoughtful Biblical truth. We don't want to be that way, but neither do we want to be hauled up studying the word all day, but divorced from the real questions that people have. We're still answering questions that people aren't even asking. We now there's some questions that people are always going to ask, but we need to be skilled at being able to address with timely answers, the relevant questions of our day. And we get that by being 
in the world, in a sense of understanding our world, you don't, now, now don't mistake me. You don't have to read everything or know everything. You don't have to stick your head in a garbage can to know that it stinks, but you still need to know what the can is and what the people are smelling. So we need to know the word. We need to know the world. So I just ask you, what steps are you taking to understand the world better and the word better? Because it's that where Christianity really makes an impact. It's that where your Christian faith will come with help to people. Because that's what Peter does. Doesn't Peter tell us to do that in 1 Peter 3.15? Always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that's in you. He's just doing what he told us to do. He's modeling for us. He's modeling how to handle scoffers. He says, lovingly argue with them. Talk it out. Give them reasons for your faith. Give them reasons why you believe what you believe. It's not just because that's what mama said. It may be that's what mama said, but that's not good enough. We need to talk about more. We need to give people deep roots. We have a deeply, deeply rooted faith. I mean, I believe what C.S. Lewis said. I believe Christianity like I believe the sun. Not because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Christianity makes more things intelligible to me than any other worldview out there. It explains more of what is going on in the world and what has happened in the world and what the solution is than any other worldview out there. And I've studied them and learned them and thought a lot about them. I was a lost kid. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I wasn't biased to this growing up. So I just, I just ask you to really take you know, take, don't be ashamed and don't be cowardly and don't be afraid to know that Christianity has deep, deep, deep intellectual satisfaction too. Really deep intellectual satisfaction as well as emotional satisfaction and psychological satisfaction and spiritual satisfaction and all the other things. It, it satisfies the whole dimension, all the dimensions of our human personality because it's God and it's true. I want to say this and then then I'm going to close. You know why all this matters ultimately? Why all of this matters? Peter's argument has been God intervenes in history. God intervenes in history. If the scoffers are right and God doesn't intervene in history, then Jesus never came. Jesus never died on a cross. Jesus never was raised from the dead like we'll celebrate next week and our faith's in vain and we need to get out of here and get busy dying. But we know that God intervened in the world at creation. He intervened in the flood. He'll intervene at the end. And he's intervened now. He intervened when he took on flesh in the person of his son and came down and lived among us. God with us lived a perfect life in perfect obedience to the law, took that perfect life to the cross, died on the cross for all those who will ever receive him and believe in him. And when we turn from our sin, trust in him, we are given a righteous standing with God, a perfect record of righteousness. God clothes us in the very righteous garments of Jesus. Our debt's canceled. Our debt gets paid by Jesus. Our bill will never come up due because it's been nailed to the cross. And now we anticipate because of what Jesus did 
And because by grace we've received it, we get the new heavens and the new earth that Jesus is going to bring back with him when he returns. And it's going to be a day of marveling and celebration for us and not a day of torment and destruction. So God does intervene in human history, brothers and sisters. And I invite all of those of you who haven't yet come to Christ and closed with Christ, that you need to solve that. You need to come to Jesus, give him your sin, receive his righteousness. And I beg you to do that today because there is a day coming and it's told about, it's talked about in verse seven where there will be fire and there will be destruction. And all those who have not received Christ, clothed with Christ, walked with Christ, transferred their trust to Jesus for the payment of their sins and their acceptance with God will be among those who are destroyed. And so this is, this is very serious. And I plead with you to come to Christ this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way in which it satisfies all those with sincere minds. It answers our questions. It satisfies our souls. It, it confirms for us that you're true. The, the fact that scoffers are even present is a confirmation that you're true, that you're real. You said it would happen and it's happening. So the mere presence of scoffers is not, does not undermine biblical truth, but it merely confirms it. Thank you for showing yourself truthful. Remind, thank you for reminding us this morning. Thank you for calling us to remember these great realities. Help us to have a life in the word and a life in the world so that we can speak your truth to others. In Jesus' name, amen.